Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community. I'm Sina Bazila Hickey. And I'm Mark Dunley. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with an interview with Troy mayoral candidate Carmela Mantella. Uh, then we hear about the decision by the United States Supreme Court not to review the new ballot access law in New York that restricts ballot access for independent third parties. Later on, Meg Kelly interviews a Siena student uh, about creating sensor stations to make trails more accessible. Uh, after that, Bria Barthel asked the Refugee and Immigrant Support Services of EMIS program to outline their services for asylum seekers and others. And we finish up with a talk with Music for the World about the benefits of a drop or swap. But first, headlines. The Times Union reports, the widow of the pizza delivery driver killed in a February collision on Hoosick Street in Troy has filed a lawsuit against the city. Its police department and officer, Justin Byers, whose decision to speed through a red light at a high speed has been determined by state police investigators to be the primary factor in the death of Sabi Alalkawi. Local communities in the Capital District are breaking heat records this week as Tuesday temperatures hit a high of 85 degrees on, um, in Albany, with more high temperatures expected over the next few days. The temperatures are 18 degrees above normal as the world continues to heat up due to climate change. More normal temperatures are expected this weekend. 120 community labor organizations have written a letter to Governor Hochul urging her to commit to converting the state capitol and Empire State Plaza to 100% clean renewable energy as part of next year's state budget. Low-income residents in the Arbor Hill have experienced more than a century of pollution to heat and power the state capitol complex. The candidates for mayor of Troy participated in the debate Tuesday night at RPI. The candidates, Republican Carmela Mantello and Democrat Nina Nichols, discussed their positions on issues such as recycling, replacing water pipes contaminated with lead, and taxes. While Mantello frequently blamed current um, Mayor Madden for the city's various problems, um, Nichols responded that Mantello, as city council president, shares responsibility for failing to solve such problems. Both candidates supported increased recreational opportunities for youth and stronger building code enforcement. The Time Dean reports that DocGo, the controversial firm hired by New York City to provide assistance to migrants, has sought to block Venezuelans from using outside counsel to obtain work authorization recently approved by the federal government. The Office of State Attorney General Letitia James sent a letter last month to DocGo informing the company to cease any limitations on the freedom of movement or speech of migrants. Albany County will purchase 2.6 million kilowatt hours of clean energy annually, from a new solar farm being built on county property at 897 Waterville Shaker Road in Colony. The five-acre solar project will be developed and owned by private companies, though construction will be done in partnership with BOCE students. The New York Power Authority will provide technical assistance to the county. That's it for headlines. We begin with a candidate profile. Uh, Carmela Mantella, the 
the uh, president, the present president of the Troy City Council is a Republican and conservative candidate for mayor. She discusses her candidacy with Mark Dunley. We're joined by Carmela Mantello, uh, who is the um, Republican and uh, other party candidate for mayor in the city of Troy. Uh, she is um, presently the uh, city council president, I believe for eight years in the city. And prior to that, she's the executive director, uh, had been of the Hudson Valley Greenway and also the New York State uh, Canal uh, Corporation. So uh, Carmel, is there anything else you want to tell people about? And, you know, what are your big hopes, you know, for the mayoral race? Sure. Um, thank you so much, Mark. And, um, you know, as you mentioned, I do have uh, eight years of being super responsive to the people of Troy. And that's what I'm going to bring into the mayor's office, the 24-7, day-to-day. Um, quite frankly, this administration, the mayor, um, Troy has been sure changed, Mark. Um, the day-to-day uh, is aloof management. Um, I feel the president administration, the mayor, they're out of touch. And, you know, that manifests itself into dirty streets, alleyways, too much crime, uh, infrastructure projects that have been delayed. You know, and as someone that's born and raised in Troy, I never left. Um, I'm very passionate about the future of Troy. So we have some good projects. They'll continue, which I've worked with the mayor on. But you know, the day-to-day, 24-7, people shouldn't have to beg for crosswalks and, you know, your basic day-to-day services. They pay a lot of taxes. They pay a lot of fees, a garbage fee that was supposed to be temporary. And, you know, that's got to change, Mark. So I'm looking forward to hopefully taking the helm January 1st and really showing the people what an on-the-streets mayor will be like. Now, you know, reading some of the media reports, I've seen that uh, both you and your Democratic opponent, um, you know, have raised the issue of, you know, how fast can the uh, city of Troy replace the um, um, lead pipes and the contamination associated with that? Are, are, are there differences between your Democratic opponent on how you would approach the lead pipe issue? Uh, absolutely. I mean, yes, you know, it's it's a number one issue. It's a priority um, for me, if you recall. The city council um, actually accepted a state grant of $500,000 two years ago, and we were told that the inventory was going to take place for the lead pipe replacement. Unfortunately, that didn't happen, and thankfully, a local paper, the Times Union, alerted us that those monies never went out the door. So that's unacceptable, Mark. Um, No parent. Uh, you know, no one should be afraid to turn their tap on when giving their child a bath or turn their tap on for water. Troy has incredible water. We have over 140,000 customers all throughout the capital region. And so the water is good. It's the pipes. And so I have made a pledge and I actually made that pledge about a month ago that in my first term, I will be very aggressive replacing Private property lead pipes were committed. It's going to be about $25 million program. The council has appropriated $3 million. And we've done about 80-something private properties, Mark. 
Um, but in my first term, I pledged to aggressively go after federal state dollars. There's quite a bit of money, especially federal dollars, um, to replace lead pipes. And that is a huge priority of mine. Now, one of the issues you mentioned was the, um, you know, separate fee for, for garbage. And I remember when I was initially uh, broached that, you know, one of the suggestions was the city moving more to, a, you know, a volume-based um, garbage system. How would you change the, you know, city's garbage system and how we pay for it at this point? And, and also, I guess a related question, C City of Troy has a pretty weak uh, return on, in terms of recycling. So what's your garbage solutions? Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad that you asked. So first and foremost, if you recall, when the garbage, I call it a tax because the mayor couldn't get the five votes to um over overcome the tax cap so or override the tax cap so the mayor uh proposed this temporary tax i opposed it from day one unfortunately a lame duck council passed it and then actually made it permanent we've seen the fee mark go from 160 bucks per household to now 223 dollars per unit so a lot of our folks are turning to the private sector, whether it be twin bridges, um, waste management, and you know, that's just, it, it's unacceptable. It keeps rising and rising. What I plan to do on day one, A, we're gonna phase out that garbage tax. Um, the recycling, I mentioned it last night, we only have about 30% of folks, if that, participating in the recycling program. That's that's obviously um, abysmal, it's weak, and we're going to increase that number. How do we do it? A, we're going to phase out the garbage fee. It's a regressive tax. It's killing tenants because what's happening, Mark, is the, the landlords are passing on the increase of the garbage fee onto the tenants. So what incentivizes those tenants to recycle? We have illegal dumping all across the city. I plan to... Uh, bulk, uh, the merit administration implemented a bulk fee also. So we're going to phase out the garbage fee. We're going to incentivize our tenants and folks um, to recycle more, not just through education, but also uh, the bulk fee. I plan to uh, implement a quarterly uh, bulk where folks could put out bulk trash. And then um, more importantly, as I mentioned, this regressive fee is, is getting folks to turn to the private sector and it is really hurting the morale of our sanitation department. We're gonna crack down on illegal dumping. We're gonna enforce the code. And you know, Mark, that hasn't been done over the last eight years is we have laws on the books, codes on the books. And unfortunately, our workforce has not gotten that leadership and supervision to enforce and be proactive. And I'm going to implement a quality of life task force, which I'll talk about later. Now, one issue which, um, you know, probably some division of opinion within the city is, is the issue of, the, of, you know, the police department, you know, more than 10,000 people a couple of years ago, you know, demonstrated with the Black Lives Matter movement. I see other people very concerned about issue of, of crime, particularly in, uh, you know, some of the street situation in North Troy. What's your uh, police agenda? Absolutely. As you know, Mark, my dad was a cop detective for 30 years. Presently, I have a nephew on the force. He's a sergeant. And 
you know, what's happened here is building that, that trust with our neighborhoods. Um, you know, growing up, everyone knew my dad, my dad knew everyone. We can't go back 30 years. I'm not suggesting that, but I'm a huge proponent. I supported adding six new police officers a year and a half ago. My opponent actually zoomed in and opposed that, saying that um, I am a huge proponent of providing those resources and tools to the police force. However, when we talk about those six new officers, what was supposed to be implemented was a very um, intense park, walk, and talk program to really hit the hot spots where we know some crime is ridden, whether it be North, South Lansenburg, North Central, and South Ray. We know where the hot spots are. So the park, walk, and talk is all about really getting our, our police officers out into the neighborhoods. But Mark, not just stopping at a ball game, which is great, and stopping at a barbecue and sponsoring barbecues. It's more really getting to know those neighbors and really incentivizing some of our new officers to actually live in some of the neighborhoods, which my dad and I, we I was born in North Central. So um, it's about park, walk, and talk. It's about um, trying to get our youth off the streets. I mean, as you know, Aishan Davis and MJ Rivera is very close. I still keep in touch with uh, the families and, you know, those who are drive-by shootings of innocent young kids. That's just not acceptable. And yes, you know, the state bail reform and raise the age has had a huge impact at the local level, but we're going to do everything humanly possible at the Absolutely. local level to keep our kids off the streets through youth programs and working with, you know, Troy Look and Team Tw Arrow. We have, we have 20 seconds left. Okay. Um, so. Carm Carmela, you have a website, I assume. I do. Carmela for Troy and the four is a number for Troy.com. I'm on Facebook, I'm on Instagram and Twitter, uh, C. Mantello, Carmela Mantello for Trey. And Thank you very much. And this is Mark Dunley for the uh, Hudson Mohawk Magazine. So over the next month, we'll have an election watch trying to cover as many of the local races in the uh, Capital District, particularly uh, City of Troy and Albany uh, and Schenectady. Um, tomorrow we should have um, Nina Nichols on, uh, who's the Democratic candidate for mayor, and later this week we'll have an overview of the uh, debate that took place at uh, RPI between uh, Carmela Mantella and Nina Nichols. And next we turn to our peace bucket, and during COVID, then Governor Cuomo pushed through a law to make it more difficult for independent third parties to get on the ballot for statewide office. The U.S. Supreme Court recently declined to review the decision by lower federal courts to uphold the law. Mark Dunley speaks with Peter Lavinia, co-chair of the Green Party, one of the parties uh, that are part of the litigation. We're talking by, with Peter Lavinia, who is a co-chair of the Green Party of New York State. And recently, the United States Supreme Court refused to hear an appeal of a decision by the Green Party and the Libertarians challenging the rules in New York State that basically makes it fairly impossible for uh, third parties that are not associated with the Democrats or Republicans to maintain ballot status. So. Peter, can you bring us up to date? What, what is the problem that the Green Party and Libertarians were, were, were challenging? 
so back in 2020, Andrew Cuomo and the New York State Legislature changed um, two, two things, honestly. Um, one was uh, how to get and maintain ballot status as a party. And the other was um, what happens if you lose that status in terms of the uh, signatures you need. And what we were challenging this time, uh, working its way through the courts, was uh, the fact that the threshold that they've set, which is either 2% of the vote for uh, governor, president um, every two years, or 130,000 votes, whichever one is higher, um, is an extraordinarily difficult threshold. Uh, it's one of the most difficult in the nation. And it was deliberately set that high uh, by Andrew Cuomo and the legislature to make sure that parties like the Green Party and the Libertarians and any other potential um, independent um, new uh, parties uh, don't make it or, or retain the ballot line. Um, so we've been uh, kind of, we, we tried to fight that in the legislature. Um, we're still hoping that we can get a bill introduced to change that um, to something much better. Um, but until now, we've been working in coalition on this, just this one issue uh, with the libertarians to try to get the courts to see that that's uh, an, an unfair burden on us and also that uh, you know, New York State acted wrongly in enacting. Now, I, I, I saw from a, a press release that the United States Supreme Court has actually rejected all such petitions, um, basically challenging lower court decisions that have been filed by minor parties and independent candidates. On, on, on ballot access for 32 years now. So it does seem like the Supreme Court is uh, not particularly interested in protecting the rights of third parties in the United States. Uh, and also it's, it, it appears likely that New York will be the only state in the nation where the only candidates on the ballot will be um, you know, the Democrat and Republican nominees. It will appear on probably the Working Families Party line and the Conservative Party line, but New York is unique and it allows fusion where you can run a more one ballot line. What, what does this say about uh, the status of democracy in the United States and the willingness of the courts to uh, actually stand up a democracy? I don't think we have a democracy in, in this country. I think we have um, an oligarchy. Uh, I think it's, it's run by the Democratic and Republican parties. Um, I think that you see this with uh, various, various ballot access laws that make it very difficult for us uh, as third parties to get in and maintain ballot access, um, our election system, which privileges um, you know, the incumbent parties and the campaign finance system that privileges money and kind of capitalist interests uh, in buying the vote. Um, so I don't, I don't think that it says anything good about our democracy. I think that the, you know, kind of the signature requirement now is 45,000 signatures in 42 days, which is uh, essentially the most stringent in the nation here in New York to get back on the ballot, which means you really need about 90,000 signatures here in New York, given how litigious the parties can be at trying to kick us off the ballot. Um, they've also scheduled that for the spring when it's almost impossible, especially across New York, uh, to see large crowds of people outside to get them to sign um, so they, they've essentially uh, eliminated democratic choice here in New York and in, in a lot of places around the country um, that that kind of access is getting worse, whether it's in democratic or Republican. You know, I, I read someplace that the uh, ballot access laws for statewide third party candidates in New York are literally now the worst in the entire world. There does seem to be perhaps a city of Moscow and Russia uh, has a similar type of uh, you know, anti-democratic <laughs> law, but uh, it, it's also in, in, in Moscow that uh, is so anti-democratic um, 
third party. Now, one of the things was also because uh, Senator Schumer um, was trying to grab some votes, uh, he, he moved the uh, some of the timelines related to making sure that um, the military overseas were able to cast their votes in a timely fashion. And one of the things it did was it moved the uh, New York state primaries used to be after Labor Day in September, and now it's in June, but that also means that it moves the petitioning period to qualify from statewide ballot from doing it during the summer to, you know, now doing it in, in March and, and April and, and May. What what are, you know, besides being 45,000 signatures or something in, in 42 days, what are some of the other problems associated with trying to petition in late winter, early spring to get on the ballot? You know, I'll talk about this in contrast with what it used to be. Back in the 2000s, we lost ballot status for about eight years under the old rules. Um, you'd only have to get 15,000 signatures over 42 days. And we had to do that in June, uh, uh, in July and August, essentially. Um, and during those times, there's a lot of people out. It's warm in New York State. There's a lot of festivals where we can go and we can get signatures. When you're talking about the late winter, early spring, those festivals don't exist. Um, people don't want to come out, especially in, in times of COVID. Um, you know, it's it's more difficult to get people to even answer the door. So um, the the structural hurdles of collecting petitions in upstate New York, especially, but even downstate when it's very cold and there's not a lot going on outside. Um, it's it's just extraordinarily difficult. Now, the the Green Party nationally is still planning to run a, a presidential candidate. Um, Green Party like the other parties, you know, have a, you know, primary process, which doesn't actually take place until I think, you know, late mid, 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 mid summer. Um, but um, I understand that Cornell West uh, is one of the people seeking the Green Party nomination. You know, would it be possible for somebody like Cornell to, given his name recognition, and I think some of the polls he's at as high as 5%, is it, would it be possible for somebody like Cornell to actually qualify to be on the ballot? And how does that impact upon the Green Party since Cornell has a petition in New York way before the national party selects a candidate? Um, I think Dr. West has as good a chance as anyone um, on the Green Party ballot to to get on. I think, you know, even more so, he he's a known name, he's a respected name. Um, he's a committed uh, leftist, um, and and I th I think that you know Cornell uh, speaks what a lot of people are feeling about the the two party system, about capitalism, um, about about socialism, and and the need for an alternative. Um, and 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 in the Green Party, I think he's found that alternative. And so I think that um, you know it's it's possible. For someone of Dr. West's stature, it's going to be very difficult. And unfortunately, it's going to cost a lot of money for whatever campaign that wants to do it. Um, uh, but I think that that Dr. West would probably have the best chance um, of any of, of the candidates that are running right now for the Green nomination. So we only have about a little less than two minutes left. Uh, it appears that Dem Democrats almost undoubtedly are nominating, um, who's that guy, Biden. And uh, the Republicans, certainly in the polls, it, it's Donald Trump, unless he's, you know, sent to jail or <laughs> otherwise barred by the law for, yeah. for running. With a Trump-Biden, you know, race, you know, what would be missing that the Green Party would be trying to raise in the last 90 seconds? Uh, 90 seconds is, is not a lot of time, but, you know, I mean, look, 
Um, we're seeing the effects of, uh, you know, catastrophic climate change um, over the last few years. I mean, this year has been, you know, the warmest year on record. Last year was the warmest year on record before that. Um, floods, uh, right? You know, you look at what happened uh, in New York over the weekend. I mean, these are things that, that you know, Joe Biden and Donald Trump are certainly not going to talk about. They're not going to talk about um, the need to transition away from uh, dirty fossil fuels uh, into a clean, renewable economy um, to to have a, a democratically planned economy um, where people it's about it's about people and about planetary sustainability. Um, you know, the Green Party is is the only party talking about these things, but also single payer healthcare. We just went through a pandemic. Um, nobody's talking about socialized medicine. I mean, the Democrats backed away from it to the extent they were ever talking about it on the national level. I mean, it just kind of disappeared in a puff of smoke when we needed the most in, uh, during COVID. Um, you know, they're not talking about, you know, living wage jobs. I think that, you know, Biden's appearance on that picket line in Michigan, um, it, this was uh, because, you know, Trump was showing up. Um, Ten seconds. desperately needs those votes. Um, so, I, you know, I, I think... Um, I think labor, I think healthcare, I think I think climate change and and a whole host of other issues. Uh, you need the Greens on the stage. Pennsylvania Green Party of, of New York State, uh, GPNY.org, and this has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Uh, since we're talking about the lack of uh, democracies, I, I guess it makes some sense to point out for the first time in United States history that the uh, Speaker of the House of Representatives has been removed. And it doesn't seem that there's any clear front runner to get uh, the House of Representatives back on, on track. Wouldn't it be something if, if, in fact, the Democrats and Republicans thought that the most important thing was to do what was right for the American people and actually talked about some type of power sharing agreement and compromise and focus in on lifting us all up, but uh, I guess that's a little bit of a fantasy. But for those just tuning in, I'm Mark Dunley. I'm Sina Bazila Hickey. You are listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, and WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany. Also streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend, post it on social media, um, writing a nice little plug on your Facebook page. But you can find today's stories and even more at mediasanctuary.org. And next we turn to Meg Kelly's interview with Christina Bell about her project in creating an uh, ADA-accessible nature trail that includes sensory stations. Uh the environment is one of the greatest resources we have access to in today's world. It educates us, gives us experiences, and provides us with a chance to immerse ourselves in the natural elements. It is something that should be a part of every individual's life. For some, it is easier to experience these kinds of things, but with a little help, everyone can equally be able to be involved in the many possible environmental activities. Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in with the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. My name is Meg Kelly, and I'm an environmental science student on the conservation track at Siena College. For my segment, I'll be talking to a fellow student at Siena, Ms. Christina Bell. Why don't you briefly introduce yourself and give the listeners a brief idea of the project you've been working on? Okay, so I'm Christina Bell. I'm a student here at Siena, and I'm actually a senior this year. 
and I'm currently working on an accessible nature trail that includes about six sensory stations along the way. So the trail is going to be an ADA compliant trail. So uh, would you mind walking through, uh, walking me through like the beginning process of like how it got started? Was there any like particular inspiration that you had in developing this? So I'll talk a little bit about how I got started with it. The summer of 2022, a professor here, Dr. Bogan, um, introduced this grant opportunity to me through the Open Space Institute. Mm -hmm. And it's the Barnabas McHenry Hudson River Valley (laughs) Award. Mm -hmm. Um, So applications for that weren't due until the next spring. So this past spring. And um, we kind of had an idea to apply for this grant, and they have a bunch of different environmental, um, different sections that you can apply for. So the focus that I'm interested in is environmental justice. So I was brainstorming, and a few inspirations in my life came into why I picked this idea. So my grandfather, he um, like was a teacher and an administrator and principal and everything and um, for many many years and also the director of the parks and recreation for Rensselaer County Mm -hmm. so that brought some inspiration to me my lifelong best friend Haley her little brother Rudy has autism and is nonverbal so um, I've seen some of the struggles that their family has gone through Mm -hmm. when trying to find a space that Rudy can be in and explore completely freely and um, without fear of like a public meltdown or judgment or anything like that. So that was a big thing. Um, I had a student in high school who passed away, but um, he also had autism and just loved being outdoors and exploring. And I wanted to create like a safe space for that to occur as well. And uh, his family created the Anthony Blaber Kindness Foundation. So that was another like inspiration, just like basically seeing what you can do for your community and then the impact that has on the community. So, yeah, that was kind of all over the place. But yeah, yeah, <laughs> a lot of different inspirations came into it. Oh, that's really cool. I, I, I kind of read a little bit about the, uh, the story beforehand and I... Um, I saw some of those kinds of uh, things, but I was I was interested to hear yeah. more about that. So, you got the grant in the spring. How has the project? Is that correct? Yes. How has the project uh, developed since then? So yeah, so I was awarded the grant in the spring, pretty much right at the end of the school year. So then this summer I did a site visit, and I also had an independent study last spring that semester. So I had been doing all my academic research and everything during that and during the grant application. Mm -hmm. So then this summer we started developing the actual sensory station ideas. I'll just say a few of them, like um, a listening station, which is going to include some like musical equipment, Mm -hmm. um, a free build play area where... There's just going to be a bunch of stuff in nature where creation, destruction, whatever Mm -hmm. anybody wants can happen there. Um, There's going to be a tree identification, walk. That's just names. Yeah, yeah. So um, have you done anything like this in the past? Led anything like this? How (laughs) 
how's your experience been through that? Yeah. So I have not done anything, especially to this scale. Mm-hmm. I've done um, a lot of community volunteer work, and um, I was involved pretty heavily in my high school with like outreach and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So um, on a much smaller scale, with a lot more guidance, I've done little projects, but this is the biggest thing I've ever undertaken. And um, luckily I have some really great mentors. So Dr. Bogan, like I mentioned before, and then um, uh, Dan and Kim from RPA, which is the Rensselaer Plateau Alliance. They're the organization that's sponsoring my internship in this work. So um, the trail is gonna be built on one of their community forests, the Albert Family Community Forest, and that's in East Nassau, New York. How about how far is that? Uh, from it's here? about forty minutes from here. Okay, so it's in Rensselaer County. Yeah, pretty local. Um, you had talked about like the different like inspirations that you've had for this project. What what is your, I guess, just your overall hope for the final product? So, with a little bit of my inspiration and my drive for this project, I really am trying to expand our definition of environmental justice because I do believe it should include disability inclusion, Mm -hmm. which, especially in my research, I found that that's fairly new and it often just gets set to the side for other very important topics like race and income, which I don't want to undermine at all. Those are definitely important, but I just think we should be expanding our definition to include the accessibility. And then the the closest trail that has the same idea as the one I'm trying to create is at Letchworth State Park. So that's a hike. I think it's about six hours from here. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, so there's not really a space that... It, currently does what we're looking to do. There's some accessible playgrounds, but that's not exactly what we're doing here. Um, We're trying to connect people to nature through their senses, which has tons of benefits by doing so. Um, So yeah, I guess just creating a space that's local to the capital region and that everybody can go to, because it doesn't just benefit people with disabilities it's really great for families with kids and strollers and the elderly because the whole trail is the ADA compliant so um to like I guess make it more accessible for like strollers elderly yeah is it going to be like paved or is it going how is that going to so the ADA compliant means that there's a lot of guidelines with it mm-hmm. and um one of them is you can't have a slope that's greater than 8%. Yes. So a lot of what Fred, he's the steward at the um, forest, the community forest in East Nassau, and he um, has been working, oh my gosh, I can't even imagine how many hours he's been putting in, mm-hmm. um, but he's been leveling it out, and um, the final surface is going to be gravel and then stone dust on top, so oh. that gets packed down, and it's almost like it's paved Mm -hmm. but um yeah not quite paved but yeah um now just uh to reiterate uh when and where will this uh be available just to get the the word (laughs) out there so people can visit so yeah we're hoping to have it completed by the end of the spring semester so may june 2024 
and it's at the Albert Family Community Forest in East Nassau on Hayes Road. So definitely come out and visit us. (laughs) It's open to everybody, and we'd love to have as many visitors as we can. Mm -hmm. Uh, Is there anything else that you'd like to add in at the end? No. (laughs) Well, thank you for uh, your time. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you again, Christina, for taking the opportunity to speak with me about your project. I'm very excited to hear more as the process continues and to see the finished product early next year. As a reminder to the listeners, this trail will be open to all at the Albert Family Community Forest in East Nassau, Rensselaer County. So please be sure to visit when you can. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. And that was um, Meg Kelly. Uh, I'll mention that I'm actually on uh, RPA uh, Advisory Committee for the uh, Barberville Falls, which is uh, next to me where I live in Postonkill. I do believe that RPA has uh, an ADA uh, accessible trail at its um, community forest in East Postonkill off of Legenbauer Road. Uh, but this will add a sensory trail has a series of experiences along the route that is designed to engage the different senses and collectively to immerse people in a multi-sensory journey. And next, Bria Barthel talks with Daniel Buttersworth about how the Refugee and Immigrant Support Services of Emeritus, uh, Emmaus, uh, helps welcome asylum seekers and others to the capital region. This is Bria Barthel for Hudson Mohawk Magazine. It's been a few months since I last spoke with Daniel Butterworth, the executive director of Refugee and Immigrant Support Services of Emmaus, or RISE. So I thought that listeners might be interested in some updates on what's happening with the organization, with the asylum seekers here, and such. Daniel, welcome back to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thanks, Bria. Good to be back. Great to have you back. So uh, what are some updates on asylum seekers that you can share with us? Well, Since Memorial Day, the Capital Region has received over 800 newcomers who have been bussed up from New York City who are in the process of navigating the asylum system. Um, These are all folks who have entered the country legally, been processed at the border, and are going through the asylum process to which they are legally entitled to. We are trying our best with a coalition of community partners from around the Capital Region to serve them as best we can. We are together tackling um, needs including um, food, uh, clothing, education needs, ENL. ENL is English for new learners, so people are coming without any English. Right. English as a new language, yes. We are also partnering with organizations that are providing legal support, uh, advocacy help, pastoral care. So together, we're we're trying to make sure we're responding to as many of the needs of this group of newcomers as possible, but not without challenges. So a couple of words that I really like there are coalition and partnering. It sounds like the extreme demand for services has really brought people together to try to organize. It's true. It's one of the silver linings of the current situation with uh asylum seekers arriving here in numbers that are uh, much more rapid than we usually see uh, among newcomers in our region. Um, We've made some 
great partnerships uh, with a large group of organizations, uh, including uh, Albany Law School's Immigration Law Clinic, the Columbia County Sanctuary Movement, Capital District Border Watch, Grassroots Givers, Capital District Latinos, New York Immigration Coalition, and Schenectady Community Ministries. They're all great partners. We love working with this group of people, and it, it really has been a pleasure to serve with them, to serve this group of, of folks. And that list of partners shows the complexity of the issues, that you've got the immediate life concerns of food and clothing, as well as all the legal issues. You mentioned Albany Law. How do you help people that come with no documentation and no English? How do you help them get ready for the many legal challenges they face? Well, so RISE doesn't do a, a lot of legal work, and we are not accredited to process asylum applications. So we do leave that to our partners. Albany Law School, also Prisoners Legal Services and the Legal Project. In the Capital Region, there are only a handful of qualified immigration attorneys who do pro bono or low bono work. This causes some complications. Any asylum seeker is required to file an asylum application within one year of entry into the country. Now that these 150 plus individuals are in the Capital Region and our lack of enough legal services to serve all of them, that becomes a real challenge over the long term in helping folks apply and receive asylum here in the U.S. Before, Well, I was waiting for our interview to start. I overheard one of the caseworkers talking about uh, for the, the legal cases, the individuals have to bring their own translators. Translators are not provided. This was a new change from Department of Homeland Security um, within the last few weeks. Uh, but yes, people are required to bring a translator to their asylum hearings um, at their own expense. And then you mentioned the complexities of people getting relocated. So they may be here, they set up an appointment for an as- for a hearing, and then they, they, they get moved someplace else. <clears throat> yes, that's, that's true. Um, I mean, this is a, a, a nationwide issue and one that um, the capital region is only has only recently in the last few months been been seeing uh, its impact here locally. Um, but because it is a national system and a, a system that is not designed not to work for the benefit of people, but rather for the benefit of the federal government. Um, and we all know how well the federal government is working these days. Right. Um, but the people keep getting shuffled, and it's heartbreaking because I think what often gets missed in the conversation about asylum seekers and human migration is that we're talking about people, not numbers. Uh, well, you said people, not numbers, but the numbers are pretty... Uh, strong. You had mentioned there are uh, how many people that came as part of the asylum seekers and then the others and then the others and how it compares to past years? Sure. So um, yeah, some context. In the capital region, we generally receive about 400 individuals in a year through the refugee resettlement process. This year, refugee resettlement continues at its normal pace. I think we've received about 375 individuals thus far this year. But in addition to that, asylum seekers who have been arriving from downstate number 
around 850. It might be a little higher than that uh, at the time of this conversation. I'm not sure. Um, and then there are a number of folks who have uh, who are undocumented who have arrived in our community with uh, not through official channels like the New York City shelter system who we don't have numbers on. They're essentially in the wind, as it were. Um, and um, serving this group of folks who lack documentation and lack the supports that the New York City shelter system is providing becomes very challenging, especially upstate. Okay, and RISE, Refugee and Immigrant Support Services of Emmaus, is doing a variety of support services, as one might expect. And I understand you can always use volunteers to help with some of those services. Always. We can always use volunteers. So RISE has a staff of about 30 members, but we have over 120 active volunteers. And our programs don't run without their support. We have a number of opportunities in our after-school program that serves refugee and immigrant youth. We also uh, have a number of needs for classroom volunteers for adult English language classes. Uh, We run year-round classes free to any participant that are certified by the New York State Education Department. And in addition to our regularly scheduled classes that we have for for RISE clients, we also have been providing English as a new language classes at the area hotels that are housing asylum seekers, offering two different levels of instruction a couple of times a week at three of the four locations in the area. And um, this effort is completely unfunded. We are doing so because it's necessary for folks as they adjust to life here, as they seek employment here. And we wanted to make sure that we were giving them the support that they need to, um, to become independent eventually and, and, and work and uh, make a better life for their families. Now, you mentioned volunteers to help with after-school and adult ESL. Do volunteers need to have special language skills or training or anything? No. We do have um, we do have some volunteers who go through a training program. Uh, we partner with literacy volunteers of Rensselaer County for that training, but it is not required for a classroom volunteer um, to have that in place ahead of time. Essentially, we need someone who is able to communicate effectively in English, who is patient, empathetic, kind, and willing to jump into the fray with us. The people that we're seeing at the hotels who are arriving through the asylums. Uh, relocation effort are coming from all over the world, not just Central and South America, as we've seen portrayed in the media. We're seeing something like 40 different languages from, from all over the globe. So listeners, if you enjoy meeting people from other countries, if you enjoy hearing about life in other places and uh, helping people make an adjustment to welcoming our new neighbors, this is a great opportunity. Uh, I know that you have a winter clothing drive going on or coming up soon, but it's 80 plus degrees as we're talking. So I can't even think about winter clothing. So let's end on a more fun note. What's what's happening on November 12th? So on November 12th, Rise will be having its annual fall fundraiser. We are having it here at Rise in Pine Hills, 715 Morris Street in Albany. We will have a number of performances from uh, from groups from around the world showcasing different uh, cultural arts and also food from around the world. We'll also be able to give folks tours of both of our buildings, talk about our programs, and you'd have an opportunity to meet some of our current and former students 
this year's theme is homecoming. We're really excited to have our alumni come back and share with all of us their successes. This event is always very sweet. It's a lot of fun. And uh, we hope folks will join us. Again, that was Daniel Butterworth with Refugee and Immigrant Support Services of Mayos. And if people wanted more information about volunteer opportunities, the November 12th event, what's going on here, where do they find information? You can find us on Facebook and Instagram, Rise Albany. You can visit our website, which is www.rise-albany.org. That's R-I-S-S-E hyphen albany.org. And we'll have information up about the event shortly. And again, that's Daniel Butterworth at Refugee and Immigrant Support Services. This is Bria Barthel for Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thanks a lot, Daniel. Thank you, Bria. And just to repeat, um, when you look for rise.org, rise has uh, a double S. And I did just read an interesting article in the New York Times all across the planet. Um, It is immigrants who are basically the bulk of the street vendors and a huge upsurge with um, asylum seekers in New York City has really created a lot of conflict with in the uh, street vendor community. Many of themselves haven't been immigrants 10 to 15 years. Uh, And Hudson Mohawk Magazine will continue uh, to cover the asylum seeker uh, issue here in the Capital District. And this is the last segment of the show. So for your question, what reduces waste? Helps people declutter and supplies people with needed items? A drop or swap? Music for the World founder Lavender joins us now to talk about the benefit of this type of event. Welcome to Hotsamoak Magazine. Hi, thank you. Thanks for having me. A familiar voice. <laughs> how's my How's my volume? Good? Good. Um, so what is a drop or swap? Yes. So uh, a drop or swap, well, well first I want to say this is part of um, our our project for Music for the World, Music for a Greener World, um, which is about environmental justice, sustainability, fighting climate change, um, which is um, ending soon in about 10 days. Uh, We're gonna close out the project. Um, And a dropper swap, the goal of a dropper swap directly aligns with the goal of our project. Um, I actually borrowed the idea from my a, col- a club I was in at RPI actually called Design for America or DFA. Um, and when they put it on, the idea was to reduce uh, waste at the end of the school year. So at the end of the school year, a lot of students find themselves with a lot of stuff that they're not able to bring back home with them or just that they other- otherwise don't want anymore. Um, but it's not that it, they're, the items are bad um they uh you know other people might very well want them and would be happy to take them off their hands so a dropper swap um alleviates that problem by giving people a place to drop off those things and then people can stop by and take anything they want so that's what it is in a nutshell so many people donate their used good to you know places like uh goodwill um, or even, as, I guess, the Salvation Army sometimes. Uh, what's different about this type of rehousing of goods? So, well, it's it's more about the community of it as well. Um, so the event that we're 
posting um, is at our local library. Um, and I like to think of it as kind of like a, a free thrift shop. So like, you know, you Goodwill and those other thrift stores, you can donate your items um, for sale. But this is more of like a trade. Um, and you know that it's going to go to someone who is going to appreciate it and could use it um, because anyone can come in and take anything they need. Um, you know, it's good for lower income people as well. Um, but even if you just see something really cool, um, you can just grab it. Um, and it's just a nice way to get, get rid of your stuff and meet your community. So Music for the World, your organization is hosting a dropper swap. You also mentioned your project, Music for a Greener World. So can you tell us about your organization and project and, and what, yeah, just, just like how, how are those separate and together? Yeah. Uh, so like I said, the goal of a dropper swap directly aligns with the goal of our project, um, which again, is called Music for a Greener World. Um, and we... Um, we're supporting uh, what's called the Planet Impact Fund. Um, so all the proceeds from this project um, will, will, or all the proceeds gained during this project will go towards the project. So we, it's for a certain length of time. Um, and like I said, we're, we're gonna end it in about 10 days. So after that, proceeds will no longer be going to this project. And the Planet Impact Fund is really cool. They um, they do the hard work of sourcing um, companies and products that have a positive impact on the planet and really try to be sustainable and, you know, eliminate um, non-reusable um, items and, and things like that. So you mentioned that you learned about this first, experienced it first while you were a student at the campus of RPI. Uh, beyond just you know, rehousing your goods, was there a community aspect to it? What, what were the other benefits that might not be quite as apparent? Yeah, so like you said, like speaking to the community aspect, you know, like when you're shopping at a thrift store, it's just like you're shopping at a store, right? Um, but when you go to a dropper swap, whether it was uh, at my school at the time or how we're doing it at a local library, you really it kind of forces you to go out and see people in your community and interact with people. And it also gets people talking like, Oh, what's a, what's a dropper swap? What is this? You know, what's going on? And so it also um, like builds awareness of this problem of, you know, we all have a lot of stuff and um, it, we don't necessarily want to throw it away because it's not trash. We just don't need it anymore. And um, I think it's a good way to also just bring awareness and, um, yeah, meet your neighbors. I think yesterday in our headlines, or maybe two days ago, we the some local libraries are doing what I think would be called a dropper swap with some Halloween costumes, which is such a wonderful idea. And um, I, from my own experience in swaps, which might be a little... It, actually, that's a question. Is there a difference between like a swap and a dropper swap? Um, because one of the things that I find really cool about that is seeing the person who maybe acquires your something that you loved and it feels a little bit um, 
more fulfilling to maybe pass it on. So is there a difference between a dropper swap and just like a swap? Yeah, I, that's a good point, uh, Sina. I, I hadn't really thought of that too. Like when you're just going to a thrift store, you don't know, or when you're dropping off your items, you don't know where they're going to go. But when you are actually seeing the people who are coming in, dropping things off and taking things, it's, you know, it's nice to actually see directly that it's going to someone who wants it. Um, and yeah, so um, the drop, the way the dropper swap worked at RPI and ours is you don't have to drop something if you don't have anything. It's not, it doesn't have to be a swap. It doesn't have to be a trade. It's a drop or a take, really. But dropper swap just has a better ring to it. So we only have about a minute left. Um, you mentioned that this is, goes on at uh, RPI. Are there other area colleges that also try to participate? And have you guys maybe reached out to some of the other colleges and students and promote it? I'm not sure. Um, I know that Design for America, the club I was in uh, that put this on, uh, they have branches all over the country. So um, there's DFA clubs in lots of schools all over the country, and they have, you know, different conferences and meet and greets and such. I don't know if any of them have put on a dropper swap. I just know that RPI has. Well, thank you. And um, thank you so much for coming on and talked with us, Lavender. Just as we wrap up, uh, where can we find more information? Oh, yes. Uh, please visit www.musicfortheworld.rocks. And I just updated the website last night, so please check it out. Um, and all the dropper swap information is there, if, especially if you go to the event page, which you can find underneath the projects tab. Thank you. And that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Sina Bazila Hickey. And I'm Mark Dunley. I want to thank uh, Joan Eason for being our engineer, as well as other volunteers um meg kelly and and bria barthel um and we'd like to hear from you you can find us on instagram and facebook at hudson mohawk mag or send us an email at hmm at mediacentury.org tune in weekdays 7 a.m 9 a.m and 6 p.m to hear local news or stream sanctuary radio at mediacentury um Org. Full episodes and individual stories are available on demand at our website and on your favorite podcast platform. We appreciate you listening. Until next time. <laughs>